with me again, please, to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to continue our series on uh, how the New Testament writers, in particular here Peter, uses the Old Testament as he tries to portray to the people the validity of the things which he is teaching them. I do apologize if this is a bit redundant. I, I know we covered it in the last message in, in July. However, since the quality of that video was compromised, I am continuing to do short videos to bring you to where that message left off before we continue on into some new material. However, these messages, these videos will allow us to explore the passages a bit more detailed than the message did. So even if you're able to view the message, you might find these uh, sessions profitable as well. So in following this, we hope to be able to uh, begin in some new ground that we did not cover before. Now, in this video, we come to the direct quotes of chapter 2, and they deal with the stone imagery of the Old Testament. So let's read it together. We're going to begin at verse 4 this time of, of chapter 2. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are be being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And the Lord will add his blessing uh, to the reading of his precious word. Now, obviously, in this short 10 minute or so uh, video, we're not going to be able to cover all the verses that we just read, but we'll be taking portions of them, and then we'll continue on from where we leave off in the next series. Now, these Verses that are read deal with that stone imagery that we find both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, there are three Old Testament passages that are used here and quoted here by Peter. We find those in, in Psalm 118. We find it in Isaiah 8, and then we also find it in Isaiah 28. Now, you will likely remember that in Acts chapter 4, and we might read that again in just a few moments, but in Acts chapter 4, Peter identifies Jesus as the rejected stone that became the cornerstone. When he was, uh, when he was speaking to the uh, Sanhedrin, he identified Jesus as that rejected cornerstone that we find in the Old Testament. He quotes and interprets, this is the stone which has become the chief cornerstone. And so he gives us an interpretation, if you will, in Acts chapter 4, of what we find in the Old Testament. Now, in all the synoptic gospels, Jesus prophetically identified himself with the rejected stone. Now, you find that in Matthew 21 and Mark 12 and Luke 20. You find all of these references to Jesus himself identifying himself with that rejected stone. 
Now, there are actually seven places where the stone imagery is referred to in the New Testament, and hopefully we'll get a chance to look at all of them. In addition to this present tense in, in uh, text here, we find it in 1 Peter. There are those that are cited in the synoptics and then the one that we find in Acts. There are also references Paul makes to them in Romans chapter 9 and again in, in Ephesians chapter 2. And each time the rejected stone is identified as the Lord Jesus Christ. So that becomes imperative because we already have an interpretation now of those Old Testament passages. We already have an interpretation that is given to us by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and through the New Testament writers. Now, in the first quote here in Peter, he refers back to Isaiah 28. So let's turn there and see this quote within the context of the Old Testament from which Peter draws it. Now, let's go back then to Isaiah chapter 28. Now, it's, it's a rather startling description, if you will, of the people of Israel. They are viewed as, here in this chapter, as drunkards and in a state unable to comprehend, in a state unable to defend themselves. They, they are the drunkards, and they're introduced as drunkards who are mocking Isaiah's warnings. So he goes, and we're not, we won't read the full text, but I would encourage you to read the full text in order that you might get the full context from which Peter draws this, this encouraging uh, word in, in verse uh, 16. But here he's speaking about the pride of, of Ephraim, the pride of Jerusalem. And he says, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, verse 4, which is at the head of a verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while there is still, while it's still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But they also have erred through wine, and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. What a, what a startling description of, the, of God's people, if you will, of the people of Jerusalem, the people of Ephraim. They had turned away from God. They had not been willing to accept his instruction. They have not been willing to accept the warnings that the, that the prophets were bringing them. And so God depicts them as being drunkards, as being those who are out of control. They have no more control of their mind, have no more control of their faculties. They are those who have just gone the way of the drunkard. And it's really a sad description all the way to the point where he says their tables are full of vomit and filth. They are so far away from the things of God, so far away from receiving instruction from the hand of God. And this is what they say. This is what they reply. This is what they say um, in their mockings to Isaiah's warning. They, they say, 
in verse uh, 9, whom will he teach knowledge? Who is this guy, Isaiah, going to teach knowledge? Is he going to teach us? Is he going to teach us knowledge? We know already the truth. We already know the, the word of God. We already know the promises of God. And whom will he make understand the message? Who is going to understand his instructions? Are those who are just weaned from milk? Is he treating us like little babies? Is he treating us like little children? In the way that he speaks to us? Are we like those just drawn from the breast, just weaned? Are we like those kind of people? For he teaches us like this. Precept upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And that is the way you teach children. We are not children. They're mocking Isaiah. So they signify that they must be dealt with as children were dealt with. When first instructed in the rudiments of a, of a language. First, they had one rule given them, and then they had another rule given them. One added to the other. And so it is one after another till they have gone through the whole. So precept has the idea of a command. And is used in no other place in the scripture, but here. I mean, the word translated um, precept in the English is found in through different Hebrew words and different Greek words. But here is the only time this particular word is used. It speaks of a little precept. It speaks of a small commandment, such as is suited for the capacity of a child to be able to obey. It's line upon line, line upon line, who are taught first to write one line, one little sentence, and then another, or to draw one line, and after that, draw another line, or where you begin with one line, and when finished, it's where you begin with another. It was rote. It was being taught by rote, the mechanical or habitual repetition of something that had to be learned, little by little. Some have seen in this the, the line of a mason. Whether that is true or not, whether that's a stretch or not, uh, I cannot say. But he, some have seen in this the line of a mason. He stretches out one line, lays the stones, then moves to, to the next line, lays a stone, goes up again and moves the line, little by little by little, building a wall. And if, and if that's the case, if that is what Isaiah is trying to portray here, it certainly fits well with the, with the description that we find in, in 1 Peter 2. So in this manner, they mocked him. They mocked him little by little, a small lesson out of one book, a small lesson out of another, a little one day, a little the next day, and so on. So their memories would not be overburdened. Now, in this manner, they mocked the instruction of Isaiah to them. So the Lord says to them in verse 13, taking their mocking tone, you will be taken away to a foreign land and to a people of a foreign tongue. You would not listen. You would not hear me. You would not take my instruction. Now, he would instruct them in a foreign land. They complained in Isaiah 28, in the early verses, that his instruction had been like short lessons, constantly repeated as, as you instruct a child. 
because they would not heed the instruction, because they would not simply obey the simple precepts. They would not obey the simple lines. They would not obey the simple teachings. They had to hear them over and over and over again. Now, this is followed in the context by verses 11 through 17. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to his people, he says, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. These words that I'm teaching you, these words that I'm warning you, these encouragements that I'm trying to give you so that you can obey is where you'll find rest, is where you'll find comfort. This is the refreshing. And yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord to them was, precept upon precept, Line upon line, here a little, there a little. And God here says that it should be as they said it was. They would be carried away to a distant land and and for a long time abide among strangers. They could have learned of rest. They could have learned of comfort. They could have learned the refreshing words of God. Yet the word of God the word of the Lord was to them the babblings of a prophet. The result being that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and caught, as Isaiah 28 tells us. But now in the middle of this intense condemnation of the people, there is inserted a verse of promise, a verse of hope. So if you read that, you get down to verse 16, please, of chapter 28 of Isaiah, where he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, thus says Adonai Yahweh, Adonai, your master, this is your master, this is the master who is Yahweh. He says to you, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Or we could read it this way. Another translation would be to say, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. So just for a clarification on that, on that verb of, of the verse, it is usually translated, be in haste. And that's what we find in our King James Version here as well. That whoever believes will not act hastily or be in haste. But the verb in all likelihood refers to the one who trusts, the one who puts their faith and trust in him. And it means that the one who trusts will not be alarmed. The one who trusts will not be in dismay. He has a sure foundation. He has a hope. He has a sure foundation and a hope. Now, what does the stone refer to? What is the theological significance within the book of Isaiah? Now, some have presented the stone as referring to a capstone or, or a keystone of an arch. You know, the very top stone that kind of holds it all together. And that may be so. And anyway, it, it makes for a wonderful illustration, if you will. 
Yet this theme of foundation is so strong in both the Masoretic text and in the Septuagint that even though 1 Peter omits the two words foundation that are found here, which are found in the Septuagint, it is far from clear that he is he is putting away or disavowing the identity of the stone found uh, where the stone found its source. So if the location of the stone in 2.6 is preserved in 2.8, it's difficult to imagine anyone stumbling over a capstone, if you will. The capstone's at the top. A stone that stumbles people lays down by the ground. Now, I think and we'll, we'll end with this thought since we're already going a little long. We too quickly forget, and I mentioned this at our message on, on the last Sunday of July, we too quickly forget how fundamentally uh, divisive Jesus Christ is. Even though uh, that point is made repeatedly in the New Testament and in the Old Testament passages concerning him, he is one who divides. He is the dividing line between those who will be saved and those who will be lost. He is the dividing line on God's way and man's way. And there is no compromise. You cannot compromise. You cannot take one or the other. He divides, and he still divides in the hearts of men. That is why there's such hatred toward those who believe, because there's a dividing between the wicked and the righteous. There's a dividing between those who are under the rule of Satan and those who are under the rule of Christ. And that division remains. And Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And he claims it over and over again. That he, the, the New Testament writers claim that he is indeed the only way. There is no other way under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. So he is divisive in that sense. And he never denies it, and nor do the New Testament writers. So Peter here in in, in uh, chapter 2, in verses 4 through 12, insists that everyone is affected by the coming of Christ. They're either affected positively or they're affected negatively, depending on whether they are, are living stones or those that rejected him and stumble over him. And they will find that he crushes them, that the stone which was rejected crushes them. And that's the, the terminology that the Lord Jesus Christ uses. And when he goes to actually uses that stone imagery that comes out of Daniel, which we'll look at in the future. The point is not quite made by the quotation that you find from Isaiah chapter 28, but the other places where it is quoted in the New Testament make reference to the judgment that that stone will bring. The stone ensures that the, that, uh, the judgment of God is inescapable. And that which they have rejected became the, the sure cornerstone, a rock of stumbling, a rock of offense. And that rock will crush those who do not believe. The next time we'll look at the idea of the chosen cornerstone, that he is indeed to us who believe precious.